Good day, friends. My name is Dan George, and I am your host of Reconciliation Road, an exciting new podcast I have started with the support of the First Nation Major Projects Coalition. Upon the launch of my podcast, some have asked me, why is reconciliation important anyway? I believe that the reconciliation process is important for all Canadians because it's about the basics of how we treat each other as fellow human beings and the kind of relationships and communities we want to build for the future. As Reconciliation Canada Ambassador Chief Dr. Robert Joseph says, our future and the well-being of all our children rests with the kind of relationships we build today. For many Canadians, we don't really know much about the ongoing impact of Indian residential schools, how it continues to be felt throughout generations and contribute to social problems. Residential schools for Indigenous peoples in Canada date back to the 1870s, and the last school only closed in 1996. More than 150,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children were placed in these schools. Connections with culture and family, parenting skills, and intergenerational relationships were damaged or lost. People were broken. With this podcast, we will take the necessary time to acknowledge and understand the past and find a new way forward together. When a problem arises here at Reconciliation Road, we don't sit around waiting for a solution to present itself. We get out there and take action to find the solutions ourselves. So speaking of solutions, my guest for our third episode is none other than Nilo Edwards, the Executive Director of the FNMPC. Welcome to the program, Nilo. Nice to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here today. Uh, if you're unaware of Nilo Edwards, if you've been uh, living uh, uh, way in the back 40 and have no access to uh, internet or or satellite television, you might not know Nilo Edwards. But uh, to those of us who know Nilo, he's uh, a very accomplished uh, individual. Uh, he joined the organization, uh, the FNMPC, the First Nations Major Projects Coalition, as executive director upon uh, the Major Projects Coalition's establishment in 2017. Uh, Nilo was responsible for the overall organizational strategy, including the management of the technical services provided to coalition members to assist them in participating in major infrastructure projects on a commercial basis across Canada. Prior to this role, Nilo served as an advisor to the First Nations Financial Management Board, one of the institutions created under the, Fisc the First Nations Fiscal Management Act. In 2019, Nilo was appointed to the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Advisory Council for Canadian Energy Policy. In 2020, he joined the Board of Directors of the Can Canadian Council for Private-Public Partnerships. Nilo, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with me here today and on National uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, I know it's a very important day to, to all uh, Canadians, uh, particularly to the Major Projects Coalition members uh, throughout this country. And maybe Nilo, just to uh, um, get us started, can you talk about some of the initiatives that you are currently uh, working on? Uh, what are you spending your time doing? Sure, Dan. Um, there, there's a, a multi-pronged approach in the uh, First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Uh, we're set up to provide our members with uh, capacity building services around uh, business development in terms of understanding the impacts of proposed projects to traditional territory uh, and, and general business literacy. Uh, putting that into action looks like 
uh, our team supporting individual projects from a variety of different levels. Uh, we can be very active or very passive depending on what the community or group of communities wishes us to do. Um, it, it, our services are completely tailored to meet the needs of communities uh, and, and to enhance their existing capacity and decision-making ability. Uh, we are engaged in five major projects across the country, uh, varying from uh, an LNG project uh, to uh, a lot of uh, a lot of active interest in the electricity market, both from uh, a generation and transmission perspective. Uh, our projects are located in uh, British Columbia and in Ontario. Um, so that's the project development side. We also have uh, an economic, uh, or pardon me, a, an environmental focus to the organization. As our members have always said, it's the environment that comes first. Uh, and so we've developed a series of tools and guidance materials to help our members better navigate the federal and provincial uh, environmental regulatory processes with a view of ensuring that uh, Indigenous traditional knowledge, cultural and community values can be leveraged to uh, ensure that those values are first and foremost uh, through the regulatory process or at the negotiation table when communities are uh, developing a relationship with a project proponent. Uh, that differs uh, uh, greatly from the way things used to be where not a lot of importance was put on those very important and uh, a lot of times intangible values uh, that communities hold uh, close. And the third rail of, of support is uh, policy and advocacy. Um, we've taken recently an approach that looks at sustainable investment and how do our members interact with the globalized movement around sustainable investment, particularly uh, environmental, social, and governance standards, otherwise known as ESG standards. Uh, why that matters is because we have um, institutional investors, pension funds, life insurance companies, and others in the financial sector like banks who are far removed from our members' territories, but yet they have an impact because they are making business decisions that ultimately impact the land, uh, the traditional territories of our members. So we've taken this approach through our advocacy that Indigenous voices need to be heard in the, uh, in the frameworks under which investment occurs in Canada. Uh, we've also taken the approach on access to capital and uh, ensuring that our members have the supports where they can, they can become co-proponents or co-developers with industry regarding the projects that impact their territories so that there's a greater say and a greater amount of influence so that things that are important to communities don't get overlooked. That's uh, quite the menu of services that uh, the Major Projects Coalition provides uh, to its membership. And is that on a fee-for-service basis? No, it's not, Dan. Um, when we got our start and we got our mandate from leadership, when the coalition was 
in the early stages of development, we recognized that human and financial resources were scarce in communities and that this initiative had to be self-funding uh, or it had to be uh, reliant on government support. And for the past number of years, we've developed uh, good relationships with the federal government uh, who funds our services and therefore we are able to provide our services free of charge so that the benefits stay in the communities. Yeah, and you mentioned the the early days, like you've been there um, from the beginning. And who were some of the other people who were instrumental in the establishment of the Major Projects Coalition? Who were there in the early days that really helped the group get its start? Well, really, it was uh, Harold Calla, the executive chairman of the First Nations Financial Management Board and former Senator Jerry St. Germain, who uh, really responded to the call of, of leadership who had just lost out on a equity opportunity in the Pacific Trails Pipeline Project. And so they came to meet with Harold and Jerry at the Financial Management Board, and uh, it really snowballed from there. Uh, uh, former Senator St. Germain uh, had just retired from the Senate of Canada and uh, found the cause so compelling that uh, he said, well, you know, given, given my Métis heritage and, uh, and the fact that, uh, that he grew up in, in poverty uh, in his early days, he said, you know, I have a, a personal connection to this issue. And he says, I'm retired, so I don't want to slow down yet. So I'm going to volunteer my time to see if this can get going. And uh, it, it really took off from there because uh, Jerry and Harold were able to convince the uh, the federal government to fund this as a pilot project in the beginning. Yeah, I remember those early days. And when I really first met you, you were traveling with uh, former Senator uh, Jerry St. Germain. In your bio, he doesn't talk much about the relationship that you have with uh uh, former Senator uh, St. Germain. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship that you and Jerry have? Sure. I, I worked for him uh, in Ottawa for uh, the better part of 10 years when he was chairman of the Senate Standing Committee on Aboriginal Peoples. And and so it, it, it's there and through the relationship with Jerry that, uh, you know, I got to meet Harold and other players, uh, Manny Jules, who were all working toward uh, advancing legislation at the time. It was the First Nations Fiscal Management Act uh, that created the FMB. But uh, Jerry was very adamant that uh, Parliament at the time passed that legislation. Uh, and that uh, in later years that we worked to support Harold and uh, and the rest of the uh, the fiscal institutions in uh, in coming to be so through that work uh, gave me a a pretty good understanding uh, you know of what the what the issues were and and Jerry always took time for people and that that's really stuck with me mm -hmm. uh, and, and particularly on indigenous issues uh, our office became sort of the uh, the rallying point in Ottawa for a lot of uh, different communities who needed a place to be. 
and needed somebody to listen to them to advance their issues through Parliament. Um, so I was quite fortunate to work with Jerry in that capacity because we we got a lot of good work done in a short amount of time. And, and for Jerry, I think the opportunity to give back uh, started with the creation of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition because there's only so much you can do from your seat in Ottawa. It has limited impact. And I think for him and by association myself, uh, it, it was great for him to uh, to get out uh, on the land, so to speak, and uh, and and help people directly, and that's that's what we were able to achieve. Yeah, I was talking with my brother uh, Satsan um, Herb George over the weekend, and he did mention to me the use of uh, former Senator Jerry St. Germain's office. Um, when um, our people, uh, the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan, were bringing our um, Supreme Court case, Delgamukasteway, to the Supreme Court of Canada, I believe um, we were able to use, um, you know, Jerry's hospitality um, um, there in Ottawa, as well as Jerry's reach. He has a significant reach, as you well know. And you know, um, when I think about the role of Harold Calla and the role of um, uh, Jerry Saint Germain. Uh, uh, in our creation story, I think it's important to amplify that because oftentimes we forget about the people who were there at the beginning and, um, you know, they were open, they were able to open up a bunch of doors for us, Adenilo. Can you just give us an idea of some of the things that they were able to do for us that created, uh, um, you know, the opportunity for the success that we're enjoying today? Well, Jer Jerry had a direct link into the prime minister's office and uh, Harold in his capacity uh, was very well linked in with uh, the department officials. So it was really a, a tag team approach. And, you know, for, for myself standing by, I, I couldn't have had better exposure to two people that I have high regard to as, as mentors in my professional development. And, and so I, I was able to watch the two of them really tackle the issue, which was a colonialist mentality in the uh, Department of Indian Affairs in Ottawa and, and, and elsewhere in government find uh, sympathetic ears and supporters and and really persevere on a, on a subject that that could be and and really has been uh, transformative in terms of trying to position indigenous communities to become full participants in the economy of the country um, there's a uh, a a real uh, Stone Age mentality amongst the, the bureaucracy in Ottawa where everybody's so risk adverse mm -hmm. and it's easier to tell you why something can't work than embrace a new idea. And so so that's the uphill battle that that Jerry and Harold face and, and still face today and what we're doing in, in large part. Um, but, you know, I... I am, for one thing, certain that if it wasn't for their perseverance and hours spent uh, away from home trying to get this going, that uh, we would not be the success that we are today as an organization without their dedication. Yeah, that's so true. Like, um, I've been 
taught that if you can believe it, you can achieve it. And I think through um, their presentations to the uh, elected and hereditary leadership uh, of the Major Projects Coalition, it uh, planted a seed of opportunity uh, in the forefronts of our leadership's mind. And, you know, um, it's been said that a good leader will take you to a place that you wouldn't go by yourself. Right. And I, and I really want to acknowledge like you, um, Harold and Jerry. Well, that, that's that's just it. And I, I think another part of this, too, that made it possible was the trust and respect that uh, uh, the, the leadership had, the leadership of the uh, First Nations Major Projects Coalition at the time uh, for, for what Harold and Jerry were doing, because everybody was so transparent with one another. Uh, this wasn't for personal benefit never has been um, and 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 really at the end of the day uh, Jerry and Harold wanted to act as a, as a conduit for the messages that they were receiving from our leadership and and brought them to Ottawa and and out of that created this this organization so uh, had it not been for the other element of the conversation the the trust and respect of, of the leadership at the time to enable us to do what we did, uh, it wouldn't have been possible either. And, and I think that's an important uh, notation to make is that there was there was many hands involved in the creation of the uh, Major Projects Coalition and uh, everybody working together really made this possible. Yeah, it certainly has been a team effort. And in my experience, Right. Um, it really takes an aspirational vision, you know, where um, a charismatic leader can paint a picture of the future of a desired future state and in doing so inspire others to move in that direction. Um, so there's people that can plant the seeds of the vision, but there's also people that need to operationalize that vision. Right. They're the ones that need to take it at the river's edge and give expression to it. And that's really um, the space where you work your magic or where I witnessed you um, really excelling in terms of um, the application of the many, many different skills and gifts that uh, that you possess. Uh, possess. And, you know, you have a unique vantage point, uh, you know, your cultural background, your educational background, your professional background um, positions you in a very unique spot. So. We know that the term reconciliation has been thrown about by everybody nowadays. And what does the term reconciliation uh, mean to you, Nilo? I, I know it's deeply personal for you. What does it mean? Well, for 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 me, it's it's about helping others. And if if I can use my talents and uh, attributes to to help others get ahead. Um, that's that's what it's all about you, you know i i grew up in in an area of of the country that's uh, that has a high indigenous population um i was born in alert bay uh on namgis uh, traditional territory grew up in a little place right next door called called sointula and uh you know right from my family's early beginnings on my my mother's uh, father's side, uh, I I saw 
the ability of people from different backgrounds to uh, work together to get ahead and to help each other. And, and so I, I grew up in that kind of a, a co- communal setting or communist setting, which it, it, it really was. And, uh, and some of those uh, community values are, are really what I hold dear when I, when I think about reconciliation and, and just making sure that, you know, people aren't overlooked because as a country, we, we've overlooked uh, people who are disenfranchised and, and on the sidelines of society. And, and this is about making sure that the playing field is level for everybody and, and that everybody can have a, a good life and, uh, and you know, basically uh, live live together happily, and that's uh, that's what I see, and that's what motivates me to to do this work is to you know try and make a difference in that respect, and make sure that uh, those who need help uh, have a voice. Yeah, the um, the interesting comment that that you allude to here is like in in the conduct of my work i'm approached by different resource players or small business owners or the crown and inevitably they they want to know how to engage with indigenous people how to engage with first nations people uh, for success and you know i think there was in the past our people um, indigenous people were seen as a business impediment Right. If we just work around the the Indians, we can get to, you know, Nirvana, which is, um, you know, money uh, for our shareholders. Um, But nowadays, you know, particularly as I witness the work of the major project coalition, I I note that um, really what you're talking about is it's not a business impediment. It's a business imperative. Why is working with Indigenous people uh, an imperative? Why should um, the resource industry, why should small business, why should Canadians care about, um, um, you know, Indigenous peoples participating um, actively in the economy? Well, for for so long, um, you know, as you point out, uh, uh, Indigenous communities were, were looked upon as, as a risk to be mitigated. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the view is starting to shift with some slowly uh, toward a view that Indigenous communities as partners add extreme value to the overall uh, stability of a project. And this has come about uh, through different uh, legal reforms, case law, and, and really advocacy on the side of Indigenous communities fighting to be recognized over the last uh, multitude of decades. And, and it's, it's gotten to a point where uh, it is now imperative, if your project is going to proceed, that you have Indigenous partnership. And I'm not saying that everything is going to proceed. But for the right projects that are acceptable to our member communities, uh, where the space is created for co-development and ownership, uh, those projects are the ones that are going to proceed. And, and it's gotten to a point, Dan, where 
the the financial markets and those who rate the financial markets like Moody's and, and others are starting to pay attention to what corporate Canada does in their relationship with Indigenous people. Because at, at the end of the day, Indigenous interests are material interests to the business community. And, and that's what we're seeing here is what takes place along the shores of Fraser Lake is going to have an impact at the cost of capital for some corporation uh, in Toronto that's trying to borrow at the lowest cost. And, and if they haven't satisfied uh, the, the local Indigenous community in terms of accommodating their interests, that leads to unresolved Indigenous interests. That leads to a higher cost of capital. And it may lead to regulatory and court challenges where in certain cases, communities are left with no choice but to oppose the project. Uh, Corporate Canada cannot afford to continue to operate that way. And uh, in tandem with this, there's a growing sophistication amongst Indigenous communities who are becoming business savvy uh, through, you know, organizations like ours and through their own means where the leadership is is not going to take the first deal that comes along. They're going to negotiate and negotiate hard for their interests, and so, so they should. Um, Corporate Canada, I think, is starting to realize this. The transition is slow, but, you know, th- this is the way of the future. The, the reality is, is if you're not prepared to make Indigenous communities partners on projects, then you're going to lose, uh, bottom line. So so our members have a a tremendous uh, point of leverage when it comes to representing their interests with industry. And and that's something that is, I think, really exciting. Yeah, we've got a tremendous amount of um, legal power Right. As indigenous people, um, you know, court case after court case, uh, we rack up victories at the Supreme Court of Canada. And, you know, in my work with um, big business, they are concerned about two things. Right. They wanted a favorable taxation and regulatory regime, and they wanted certainty of access to the land base. And the quick realization is that it's our people who are the ones who are. Who, can, who are the only ones who can give you certainty of access um, to the land base. So um, I really um, admire the work um, of the uh, coalition as it moves towards co-development, ownership, collaboration. And I think one of the really interesting wrinkles of the Major Projects Coalition that not too many people clue into is the fact that there's hereditary leadership and elected leadership as well who are members of the coalition, who are collaborating together uh, for a greater impact for their citizens. Can you talk to us a little bit about the hereditary and elected leadership uh, who are your members? Sure. I I think it was, uh, you know, an important recognition early on in the coalition's development that uh, both sides uh, needed to be uh, included. Uh, and that there there were nuances in the decision-making process 
in, in different areas of, of our membership, particularly uh, Gitsan and, and Wet'suwet'en that were really driving it at the time. Um, it's also important for us as an organization that we, we include the hereditary aspect of the leadership in uh, our tools, our decision-making and our processes, because I, I don't think many people realize those who are outsiders looking in, but hereditary leadership do not have the access to the same the same government services and 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 supports as as the band council does. So oftentimes, they're, while they're a very important component of the decision making process on the land base, they're they're left out of of the resources. Uh, so we've said as as an organization that uh, our tools can be taken advantage of by by hereditary leadership to inform their decision making. Uh, an example of that is we're now engaged with the uh, the Gitsan watersheds in uh, helping them develop a uh, a land use plan. And uh, you know, governance, Dan, as as you know, is so important in communities when you're talking about advancing um, for the future and being able to take advantage of resource development opportunities or, or whatever the case may be. And so having these foundational documents like land use plans, et cetera, really help leadership in, in making those informed decisions based on uh, real guidance. And, and that's where we're trying to get. Um, I wish we could do a lot more, uh, but, you know, I incremental steps to, to begin with. Mm -hmm. Go slow to go fast, right? And and the one thing for me is, um, in a lot of the work that I've undertaken, there's always an aversion to getting hereditary and elected leadership in the room together. And um, for me, I like to throw the door wide open because I think we have more in common than we do differences. Uh, you know, the members uh, who are on the membership list for the band council, elected chief and council, are the same members who are part of house groups, who are part of clans. So we're talking about the same people. We just have to find ways and means of how we can uh, overcome, um, you know, decades of, um, of division that have been created by false, um, you know, false... Uh, labels that have been placed upon us whether you're urban off reserve on reserve status non-status we have to find ways and means to work around that and it appears that the major projects coalition has been successful uh, to that end um, a lot of your work is about um, raising the business acumen of your members the financial competency the environmental stewardship uh, responsibilities that they have as well are there any other areas that you've been focusing in on capacity? Uh, you know, when you're looking into the future and seeing where Canada is going as a country, what are some of the things you might see on the horizon that we need to, um, you know, gather our capacity for? Well, uh, I think we've learned a lot through our uh, our support of our members in the last five years on major projects as as to where the gaps are. Um, 
I think in the next little while, we'll have the opportunity to come out with uh, some services around uh, uh, how the capital markets work and how financing is raised because we've we've learned through our engagement that uh, there isn't a lot of, of knowledge at the community level about the decisions that need to be made in order to buy into a project. Uh, and, and so if we can get in and uh, pr- start to provide some literacy around that and some training, uh, it, it's going to, to make for better long-term decisions. And it's it's going to provide uh, some insight into, into a critical component of, uh, of economic development, which is financing uh, your, your participation as a partner in projects. Uh, the, the other area that's tied into this is focusing on the separation of business from politics. And this, this goes to corporate governance, and it's a, a little bit of a, of a hairy issue, I suppose, in, in some sense. But uh, what, what we would really like to be able to do is pr- start to provide some guidance and some best practice around why you'd want to consider setting up a, a corporation with an outside board of advisors, um, how to, to really manage your resources for the creation of long-term wealth, uh, the setup of trusts, et cetera, because a lot of these projects have significant revenue streams attached to them. And uh, what is done with the money at the end of the day matters almost as much as, as getting into the project. And I've heard from, from our members time and again that they want to have long-term sustainable wealth for future generations. And so that takes good governance and it takes planning. And if we can offer some tools around that to the benefit of our members, uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. We've seen uh, recent developments uh, in the news, um, shocking developments out of the Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School, um, which um, people are saying is essentially the tip of the iceberg um, here um, in the country as it relates to unmarked graves at um, residential schools. So it seems, you know, Nilo, more people are talking about it, uh, you know, this really unfortunate traumatic situation has to lead to something good. It has to. And uh, I think that's the responsibility that uh, we owe those who we have lost um, through the residential school system and that we have lost through the application of, uh, of the Indian Act. And so with everything currently going on in the world right now, Neela, what excites you the most about reconciliation? what what excites me the most is is seeing the the impact that uh, the good things that we're doing are having on uh, our members mm-hmm. uh, and and really um, I, I'm getting questions about okay what next and and that's a big indicator because people are are getting excited about uh, determining their future in a way that they may have not had the opportunity in the past to do. Um, you, you know, uh, I get excited when I when I hear things such as the province of BC 
negotiating agreement on forest tenure with the carrier Sukani and returning uh, control to them over over the forests. I mean, this th- this is transformative stuff here. Um, you know, I, the, these are the things that that excite me, Dan. And if we can play a small role in making sure that uh, that people are able to determine the future for themselves, then then I think the, the future looks pretty bright. Neil, are you a sommelier? Do you even do you have any training in drinking wine? I heard you're a really good wine drinker. Is that is that true? Well, I uh, I I used to be Dan, and and be. I and I I say that because uh, um, wine and and kidney disease don't don't really mix, and I I, I live with stage four kidney disease, and uh, I. Uh, I used to enjoy drinking wine a lot and, and now I, I can't because it just doesn't, it doesn't agree with me, but I, I got certified as a, uh, a wine professional or sommelier back in uh, 2012. And, uh, and that was, that was a great experience because it uh, really uh, brought in new friendships It. uh, uh, it gave me a hobby. I uh, I don't have too many hobbies outside of work. I, I'm constantly working, so to have something to to look forward to um, really was nice. And and I still enjoy it. I still collect wines now and again, and I I I like them because they're part of hospitality. And mm. and and to give somebody. Uh, you know, a nice meal with a nice glass of wine or to give away a bottle of wine. It's uh, an expression of, of appreciation. And, and so I, I still get satisfaction out of that. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not uh, able to uh, enjoy wine like I, I used to. And your stage four uh, kidney disease, um, good things are on the horizon for you and your wife. Is that correct? Yeah, my my wife has been uh, medically cleared to to be my donor. Um, I can't have a transplant just yet, Dan, because according to uh, uh, my doctors, I'm still clinically too healthy uh, with a uh, a 17% GFR or filtration rate. I have to... uh, Drop further to uh, eleven or twelve percent before they'll they'll do the procedure, and uh, that that could be a while yet. Uh, I'm quite thankful that uh, during COVID and as we're coming out of COVID, that I wouldn't have to go into the hospital for a procedure like this. Uh, but I am looking forward to having it done because I uh, I have to live with the uh, the crushing fatigue that i that i have every day um because of of the the disease and you know working as i do and looking after myself is is always a fine balance and if you you ask my wife i uh, i i don't have a balance but i'm i'm trying to be better about that yeah that um you know those of us who um who know you, those of us who love and respect you, we're very, very happy to hear of the match um, of you and your wife, you know, and it wasn't surprising because you guys are a match on so many other levels um, as well. So 
um, you know, it really fills our heart uh, here at Reconciliation Road that um, you are going to be on the mend uh, in the near future. Um, I kind of chuckled to myself a little bit here. My wife, you know, I, I, you and I are kind of similar in terms of our work ethic, I think. And my wife wanted me to get a hobby too, right? Because I don't have one. And, and so my hobby now is scratch tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was thinking it's something a little different for me, probably something a little um, recreational or athletic. But uh, I've chosen um, uh, scratch tickets. Uh, how, how, how's the return on investment? The return on the investment has not been good. You know, it's not been good so far, but, you know, it's kind of like um, AA, you know, don't quit before the miracle happens, right? So I got to hang in there until I win that, uh, until I win that big one. Listen, uh, Nilo, um, many experts across countless leadership books and articles agree on certain principles that are required for leading a team to greatness. But when it comes down to it, the most important factor is whether or not the leader is getting the job done. As the FNMPC Executive Director, Nino, you are getting the job done and you're getting the job done in spades. You have driven and championed uh, the FNMPC in the right direction. You have role modeled uh, professionalism and a relentless work ethic that has served to uh, both inspire and guide the staff, the technicians, the members, as well as uh, your high functioning board. I admire uh, many, many things about you, uh, Nilo. But what I admire the most about your leadership style is that you look at a problem and see the possible outcomes, the possible future. You don't spend too much time stuck on problems. Uh, you think systematically and strategically, and this is reflected in the different tools, systems, and methods that have been put in place by the major projects coalition under your leadership. You have little time for excuses, I found. And, um, and I kind of laugh at that too, because I was supposed to start uh, this podcast way back in uh, April uh, one, and uh, I kept up coming up with some excuses. And then after a while, uh, you didn't have any, uh, any time for that. So here we are, we're actually having the podcast. So uh, uh, good on you, Nilo. Um, you also, um, what I've seen is you resist problem-oriented questions, right? Because we don't want to get stuck in the problem. We want to get stuck in the solution. And um, at the core of everything uh, that we do, and um, I've witnessed this through um, the personal um, a circle of uh, colleagues, uh, friends, professionals that you have around you, as well as the different organizations and entities that you have brought to the Major Projects Coalition, that collaboration is important to you. And, um, you know, um, this notion that uh, we are stronger together uh, is uh, exemplified by uh, how you do your work day in and day out. So thank you, brother, for sharing your important work with the Reconciliation Road audience. Any final words you want to say on the way out the door, Mr. Edwards? I I, I just like to to thank uh, our our members for continuing to uh, and our board uh, for continuing to allow me to contribute in the way that I am. It's a uh, it will always be a highlight of my professional and personal career for however long I, I get to do it. And, you know, wor working with people like yourself, Dan, and others, um, you know, it gives me a lot of joy in my life and it gives me a reason to get up in the morning. So I, I just want to thank those people for uh, the contributions that they've made in my life and you know, allowing me to, to do what I do every day. 
Excellent. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, Nilo Edwards, for sharing your important work with the Reconciliation Road audience. Please join me in future episodes of Reconciliation Road, where I will introduce exciting change agents who are pushing the dial on reconciliation. Until then, stay safe and keep standing in the light. Masicho. Boom! That's Good it. job, Milo. Thanks, Dan. That was uh, that was fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. These are going to get better, man. As soon as we, these are getting better. We're going to get uh, people are interested in talking. So, I think I'm going to have some interesting guests. I also sent it to uh, Jack Canfield. I want to enter. I want to interview him because part of his work was in Harlem, where he first started working with marginalized communities of Black kids. Right, that's where he first got his you know, power of positive thinking and all that stuff. And I want to try and get him on about how do you, how do you turn trauma into opportunity? Mm -hmm. Like the 215 and that, and then there's more that are coming. How do we use that trauma to, um, to help us in the future? Yeah. So I'm trying to get him on, on the program too. Well, that that's great, Dan. You're uh, really doing the, uh, a great job here and I, I I think you know I I have to share something I, I talked to uh, a First Nation in Newfoundland um, the other day and uh, they are are in the process of joining FNMPC and they have a 10 billion dollar um, LNG uh, offshore project and and I asked them. I said, "How did you hear about us?" And they said, "Oh, we we've started following you on social media, and and we we love everything that you guys stand for." And uh, and so I, I say that to you because you know the the voices that you're amplifying through the work that you're doing in this podcast may not seem like much at the beginning, but it actually has a huge impact in. The brand recognition and the notoriety of uh, of our work and, and your work and what the the ultimate objective is. So it, it's really exciting. You're a good man, brother. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care, Dan. Uh, have a have a good week. You too. Enjoy the rest of your day, brother. Bye bye. bye. Reconciliation Road is supported by the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. The FNMPC is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free of charge resources to First Nations in Canada, supporting their efforts to gain equity ownership stakes in major projects being developed on their traditional territories, while ensuring that the integrity of the land is maintained for the enjoyment of current and future generations. The FNMPC envisions a future where we walk the path of the Reconciliation Road together. For more information, please visit us at fnmpc.ca.